0: visit ElkinsConsulting.com and schedule a one-time 90-minute finder session. Well, today is kind of a special day. Um, I get to interview my friend, John Dunia, um, who is known as the Shame Doctor. And the reason this is special is because we talked about two years ago about um, his being a guest on my podcast, and it never really happened. And then one of our mutual friends, Charlotte Wittenkamp, sent me an email and said, I just got to know John and you should interview him for your podcast. I know you guys would connect well. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's right. He fell off my radar and I'm so excited to finally get a chance to visit with you. So John, thank you so much for joining me on Your Stories Don't Define you How You Tell Them Well.
1: Thank you very much. I really feel honored to be with you here today, Sarah. Thanks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I always get started by asking my guests to share something about themselves that most people might not know that something that's not on your LinkedIn profile or your bio and certainly not something on the jacket cover of your new book. <laughs> um, but what do you think? Do you have something you could share with the audience?
1: Certainly. I, um, I started off in, in, uh, in, in, on my, in my college days studying music. And I have a degree in music. I started off as a comp major, but then I ended up shifting over to uh, performance. I play the trumpet, and I play in a local symphony here uh, in Henderson, Nevada.
0: I did not know that. Oh, that's awesome.
1: And uh, we are going to play Mahler's first symphony. Sorry, a little plug here. But if you're not familiar with that symphony, it is a bear for the trumpets. And I can't miss a day of practice, or I'm going to be hurting.
0: (laughs) Wow. 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 I, I always think about um, the embouchure that a trumpet requires, the the lip position and strength for trumpet, um, and and most of those those horns, um, the trombone, the French horn. One of my friends plays the French horn with the Hellenist Symphony, and wow, that's that's an amazing accomplishment to be playing the trumpet in a symphony. Congratulations!
1: Oh well, thank you. Uh, I... I, I should do something with my degree, that's about the only thing I do with it. But.
0: <laughs> well, I guess that's not unusual. I read, 20 years ago, I read that only 15% of people actually go into the area of um, business or uh, industry that they graduated with a degree from. Yeah. So, and I'm mm-hmm. guessing those are generally medical and, and law, but... Um, I don't know. I did. I continue to use my degree. I have, my degree is in business. So, but really, um, musicians are very well known for being very versatile when it comes to business and work. So, um, I'm sure that you've applied a lot of that, your degree program, what you learned socially, um, listening skills, mathematics. There's so many things that go into a music degree that people just have no idea.
1: Yeah. There is. I actually was early on, I was teaching, I taught trumpet. I, I did teach a uh, junior high band. Again, that was in my late 20s. And I also repaired band instruments that I really enjoyed, because you got to interact a lot with kids. And you know, and you could also help them out, and you know, kind of encourage them when they'd come to get their instrument fixed. And I got a couple of funny stories there, but that's beside the point.
0: No, 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 that's not beside the point. That's exactly the point. One? Yeah, get, share one of I your got, stories.
1: Two, two quick stories. This this lady brought her her saxophone in to to get repaired for her son, and I was looking at it, and I asked um I asked, well, how 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 much do you practice? And the parent looked at me and says, practice. My son's good. He doesn't need to practice. <laughs> and i thought oh my okay i'm not even going to touch this one with a 10 foot pole and then here, here here's one of my favorite stories <laughs> when you see certain certain dents like you know if somebody comes in with a trumpet and their mouthpiece is stuck and and the whole lead pipe is torn off you know the father just grabbed the wrench and tried to take it off himself that happened so many times but there's a, this one person b- b- brought in a flute and there's a dent right in the middle and it Basically, the bod, the flute sitting on a bed, and somebody sits on it inadvertently. And so this, this lady brings the flute in, and I look at it I go, oh, so you sat on your flute, huh? And she turns to her son and goes, you told me you didn't sit on your flute. <laughs> like, oh, I busted him.
0: <laughs> busted is right. Oh, yeah, my that gosh. Was
1: funny. I a, oh, I, I
0: bet you have a lot of those.
1: Here. Yep. Yeah, good ones. <laughs>
0: Did, was there ever gum in one of those woodwind or
1: or horns i'm sure there were was nothing that really that really stands out in my mind um you know that was causing the issue but i'm sure there there were yeah
0: yeah i remember when i stopped playing my flute it was because i got braces and i had a really hard time getting my embouchure back yeah. lifting my lips over my braces to be able to get a good sound out of my flute and so i stopped but You know, what's interesting is that during COVID, I picked it up again because I still had my original Artly flute and I brought it to the local music shop to tune it up, you know, get it, get it back to looking nice and polished and replace some of the pads. And the, the young man who fixed my flute actually played in the orchestra with my son.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Yeah, which was so great. They were in middle school together. He's a phenomenal musician himself. And um, he fixed my flute for me, Jared. And I remember coming back to it last year and I could actually get pretty good sound with it. And I got one of those original um, first year band books Yeah, and just went through the whole thing over the course of like a couple months and just page by page trying to remember my fingering. Yeah. It was awesome coming back to it. I love that you're still doing that.
1: Artly is actually a really good flute. So you have a, you got a, you should have a pretty decent flute there.
0: Yeah. Well, I think so. Um, I'm figuring out some interesting songs. Like (laughs) my husband and I, we play in a band called Rocket to Uranus. Yes, really. And um, he plays the guitar I sing. And sometimes they'll do some instrumentals like, the song tequila by the ventures. And um, I learned some of the melody of tequila on my flute. So when we eventually start performing with that band again, I'm thinking, wouldn't that be fun to whip out my flute and play on one of those instrumentals?
1: Sure. Absolutely.
0: Oh my gosh. We could talk music all day, but that's, I mean, that is part of why we're here, but um, this is actually a great transition into the conversation because you know, I'm a believer that everything happens for a reason and that the things that happen in our lives um, are all related to where we end up. So it's not so much the things that happen, but the way that we talk about them. And I'm curious to know um, when it was that music shifted for you when um you went from just playing the trumpet to choosing to go to college to play the trumpet. Like that's that's kind of an intensity when you choose to do that. What happened?
1: I was uh, in junior high, and there was a guy who was five or six years old. It. I went to a small school, okay, and it was a private school. And, you know, like I had seven people in my graduating class, okay. So, wow. you, and <laughs> most of these people also were part of an organ, a sports organization. So I knew him. There, were, there was a guy who was about five years older. His, his, his little brother was, was a friend of mine. And he was in this room playing switched on Bach. Now, I don't know if you've heard of switched on Bach, but it's it's Bach done on a Moog synthesizer. And I walked in and that music just blew me away. Um, I had already I, I had taken trumpet in fourth grade. I started this private school in seventh and I started taking piano just because I enjoyed music. I wasn't really thinking about it, but I heard that switched on Bach. And it just it just shifted things for me. Uh, the the piece there the very first piece on there is called Symphonia to Cantata number twenty nine, and I love it so much. It's actually the ringtone on my phone. <laughs> Still, yeah. wow, and, seventh and grade. Yeah, well that 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 could have been eighth grade, but I because uh, I was thinking about studying math. You know, I was always really good at arithmetic. Boy. Algebra is another thing, but I was, I was, I was quick. And so I thought, well, I'm going to study math. Then uh, that music just blew me away. And I started writing music and got really interested and became just a, pretty much a classical music uh nerd, junkie. That's all I ever listened to. And that really was the that was that was the chain the catalyst that got me to to shift my thinking to I'm gonna study music.
0: Wow. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, you know, that relationship between mathematics and and music is very common. I know a lot of engineers, like software developers that are musicians. So I find that really fascinating. So I'm imagining you walking into this room and hearing this symphony, this Bach. Do you remember the kid that introduced you to it, the, the older brother of your friend? Yeah. Why? Yeah. What was it about him? I mean, clearly you had some appreciation or... uh you looked up to him in some way. Oh yeah. Remember definitely. That? Yeah.
1: What was that he, relationship? He himself is an amazing musician. In fact, um I don't know if you've heard the game EverQuest. It's an older uh, yes. video game. He actually wrote the music mm-hmm. for that for Sony. Um wow. but at the time he played trombone, he played guitar, he played piano and was an incredible composer. He was probably a junior in college at the time, but um this guy just just phenomenal. He he was get, he was going to actually develop video games that would help people teach music, to help them music. But this guy he he's probably still at in the music. I don't I haven't I haven't really contacted him much over the last uh, ten years. But he's he's just when it comes to music he's he's there. He's he's just, he's wow. just Yeah.
0: Wow. You think about the influence that that young man had on you in such an instant moment, and then to continue that influence. I just got to chill. That's just
1: oh, really, yeah. so
0: cool. Well, like, you know, think about it. There are so many times we don't know the influence we have on people. We just, we can't. And he may know to a certain extent, but if he heard this, he'd probably be really surprised to hear how uh, 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 the intensity uh, uh, of that.
1: Yeah, possibly. I mean, we did a lot of, th- I remember we were practicing, trying to, trying to get perfect pitch. Cause it was something that you could acquire. So I, I had done that with him. And I mean, he, I, I, we kind of worked together cause we were both part of this organization for a while. So, um, so I, you know, but he, he may be surprised to know that that was the influence, but, um, yeah, yeah he, he was certainly a, a good influence because the guy, he was, just, he just phenomenal. I mean, wow. he could hear stuff, play it, write stuff. Just, I mean, he was just, just incredible.
0: Well, so. we might just have to um, look him up. If you think about it, and you want to share his name with me. We oh, might sure. just have his to look J him is,
1: up. It's a J Barbo, B A R B E A U. Yeah. Okay,
0: so we'll. I'll go ahead and look him up, and maybe add a link or something to see what the what was the name of the game again?
1: EverQuest.
0: EverQuest. I'll look yeah. that up, and um, we'll include a link in the show notes on my okay. blog for this podcast episode. That's awesome. So now here you are, a music degree in hand for performance, teaching, fixing musical instruments. And somehow in the last two years, you ended up writing this book. And then is it is it out now or is it soon to be published?
1: It is. is. Well, it's in in e-form, right? E-book right now. And I I haven't I haven't. uh, uh, It's the second edition of my first book, which my first book is a paperback. Um, and I, I have some available, but it's like, why do I sell my first edition when my second is so much better? <laughs> so, yeah,
0: isn't that funny? <laughs> you know,
1: the, the second one is is an, is only available in an e-format right now. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I am. Okay, so what's the name of the book? The book is called Shame on Me, Healing a Life of Shame-Based Thinking.
0: Wow, that's pretty intense. Yeah. So... Um, w- I'm thinking about this transition between music and what what did you do after you left um, fixing instruments and teaching trumpet? What was your in-between career?
1: Well, um, I ended up meeting somebody and we got married. she had three kids and we started a screen printing business and um, doing other ad promotions. Um, we floundered for the longest time. Um, then I ended up Finding another job, uh, being a sales rep for in for a company that that does products for high end construction, and so I was working on that. Um, then in about two thousand, that's when I went to work again, going coming back to my music career for the music store um, in Las Vegas and doing doing repair. And I did it for about four years, where this other this other job that I was doing started taking off and I, I was able to, to leave that. Not that I didn't like it. I just I just wasn't going to um, to really make a lot of money in that right. field. I had, yeah. You know, I really enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong. But,
0: right. But there are yeah. limits. There are yeah. limits to what you can accomplish in that position and yeah. the impact you can have.
1: Right.
0: Huh. Interesting. So you were um, in this uh, construction, high-end construction materials sales yes. for a long time? I, I, yeah, definitely. Okay, and For then twenty years, and then something shifted, and you ended up becoming the shame doctor. Yes, what happened? What happened? I mean, there there is obviously, obvi- Now again, I've said this so many times in these in my episodes that I don't believe in light bulb moments. I believe everything. Everything is on a dimmer switch. Very rarely does something just happen. Um, There are all kinds of little incidents that lead up, but then there is a story or a series of stories that bring that light bulb full on bright. So what's one of those stories?
1: Well, the shift started when my 22 year marriage fell apart.
0: Ah, Yes. (laughs) Not uncommon.
1: (laughs) That's that's the catalyst. We we were trying to get things going and uh, we had, seen a therapist and that was a waste of money and then things started to get better then they got worse and so with one last hurrah i reached out uh, i i did a search for a couple of therapists i found one and um funny story which i relay in my book i left him a message he said you know i'm sorry i can't get back to the phone but i will get back to you within 24 hours he never got back and then about 36 hours later he called me back and he was like oh i'm really sorry and I'm sitting here thinking in my mind, you know, you told me 24 hours. You didn't do it. I felt like just, you know, tell him to go pound sand and hang it up. But I thought, you know, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and see him. He ended up being a huge inspiration for what I like to call my growth and transformation period. Um, he provided me with the tools to help me understand where – you know, where the issues were, where, what I refused to see, what all, and all these kinds of things. And that really, that, um, that connection with, again, his, his, uh, he's Dr. Shannon Smith, that, that's really what inspired me to just completely take my life in a whole other in direction. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Um, I'm sure that you have some vivid memories of those first couple of, Appointments with him where you left and had like those moments of deep processing of yeah. what happened in the room. Do you remember one of those in
1: particular? Well, yeah, the, the one that I like to call um I where where the light really came on. I and I I call I refer to it as my independence day, but I was seven months into therapy. I, I had been progressing. And, and I could see things were going on. But in this particular meeting, I finally understood the idea of shame, and what it really meant, you know, because people always say shame, guilt, and they, they like to, they like to put them together. In fact, some dictionaries, when you when you look at the definition, they don't really distinguish them the way they ought to be distinguished. And that's a big part of of, of my practice is knowing that difference between guilt and shame. But it's like, I was sitting there and basically, see, I, when, when I define shame, it's the negative things that we've come to believe about who we were and are. And, and it's, it's it's the verbal noise that, that it only becomes shame when we accept it. And I realized in that meeting that it wasn't the things that people told me that were keeping me down. It was the fact that I read, that I believed those things that they told me. Mm-hmm. that were keeping me down and that was when the lights go on and, and I, I i i record my sessions and i would listen to them over and over and over and over again and this particular session was funny because i look back at that session as boom the lights go on right but i listened to my voice months later and even years later and i didn't seem to have that excitement like i do now and and i i put it this way i don't know what I don't go to as many sports games anymore at night, but back in the day when they had those, those uh, whatever lights, the, the lights went, when they would go off, it took a couple of minutes for them to cool down and then you turn them on and they'd start off really dull and then they would get brighter and brighter and brighter. Soon it got bright enough for the game to commence, but it wasn't hundred percent bright. And then you would sit there watching the game and then all of a sudden you realize, Oh, Hey, the lights are on or full on. That's how I look at that day. The the lights went on, but they were they were dim. You know, now I look at that day as as wow, that was that was the instrumental day of change. But thinking back, you know, and hearing my voice, I don't think I really fully got it until 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 much later. But that that's it was February twenty second, two thousand thirteen. That's the day I call my uh, my Independence Day, where the lights came on.
0: Well, that's exactly um, as as I said, that's exactly the dimmer switch thing. That, yeah. um, that that may have been the day, but it took time to process what you heard and what you thought of what you heard. And um, I'm a big believer in taking time to process these experiences. Um, I think about um, when I heard a story similar to that with uh, Stephen Magling about um, having this weird experience and walking away and not realizing until months later that that experience was a trigger point or, you know, that that was the experience that um, changed. I call it the pivotal moment story, um, but it's not till you look back that you can say, Oh, that's when that happened. Yeah. And I love that. I love that, you know, that moment. And it's probably partly because you recorded all your sessions. So you have the date, you know, when
1: it happened. I recorded it. I did a lot of journaling. I have three journal. I'll probably never read them all. But Mm -hmm. I, I almost, I wrote on a daily basis. And then when I started writing my book, I did, I, I started writing it, but in, in January 1st of 2015, I said, okay, my New Year's resolution, which I rarely do, I'm going to complete this book. And I ended up finishing it on Christmas day of of that same year. Um, Yeah. But I, I, I worked from three in the morning to five morning because I had my day job it's the only time I had to write and i would i would write every day and uh sometimes throw away stuff like I ended up i ended up rewriting chapter seven two times and it's the longest chapter three maybe three times yeah <laughs> so it it was it was um it was it was tough it's one of those things where man I just want to give up and then you're you're all through and you're like ah eh, is it you know, it, but I I persevered and got through, and I'm so glad I did it because mm-hmm. even writing the book really did a lot. I mean, I, I I even stayed in the very end of the book, even if nobody ever reads a single word from this book. I still feel it, it has done me a lot of good because it took my journey and it it made me sit, like you say, and contemplate and think about it. Why? What why did I react this way to shame? Why would I do these things? And 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 you you know, we talk about these things in the moment, but we never really sit and reflect. Why did that happen? Why did I allow this person's to have this much influence over me? Those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And what was my writing. role in it? Right. Yeah. And writing is an excellent way to process all those things.
0: Absolutely. Uh I know that I'm one of those people that needs to process on my own in my head for a while and then I write and I externally process with somebody I trust. I know that that's my my the way that I I process things that are changing me and that are changing the world through my experience with it. So um I am really curious about this idea that um you finally had this experience with self-reflection that changed, innately changed who you are and how you respond to or react to external stimulation. And I say that because you said that the, the catalyst was this falling apart of your marriage. And I know that when we talked a few years ago, you were in a relationship with a woman. I don't, I don't know the status of that, But I'm curious about the moment when you realized that you had some uh, influence in your relationships and that you had a choice about who you were going to bring to to the relationship to to make it healthy. And I I asked that, and let me back up a little bit. I asked that because um, I worked with a guy a few years back, one of my coaching clients, and he had decided that he was just an asshole. That was, he's just like, that's, that's me. That's my authentic self. And I said, well, how's that working for you? He said, it's fine. I said, so your relationships are satisfying and it got very quiet. And that's what was the the moment where I said, "You, you can have good relationships and you don't have to live with that asshole authentic self. You actually can choose to not be that. So I'm curious about when you noticed that in a relationship, whether it was at the very beginning or partway into a relationship, whether it was partway into a relationship that that happened for you,
1: um, my first relationship was all about my my thinking. The way I grew up, my thinking was I need advice from somebody else because I'm not smart enough. I'm not okay. Yeah, I, I grew up in it was, it was a religious organization, and you know, following God and going to heaven, all these really big and the and the way I was taught listen to your spiritual leaders. So in a in a way I never really felt like I was worthy enough to receive the answers directly from God. <clears throat> and what but what I didn't realize is that thinking didn't it carried over into other areas in my life. How am I, you know, how am I going to be a good musician? Tell me what I need to do. How am I going to be a good athlete? Tell me what I need to do. How am I going to be a good husband? Tell me what I need to do. And so I ended up not really being myself but trying to find out what my partner wanted to be. You know, she'd ask me, where do you want to go for dinner? And my thought was, where am I going to choose that's going to make her happy? You know, now that wasn't her fault so much, but that's the way I developed. And her her particular weaknesses, we sort of nurtured each other's weaknesses. She became strong, you know, and again, I don't want to get into hers. I will say nothing to put her down or, or you know whatever she learned is her lesson whatever what i learned i'll be happy to. i have no problem telling people what i learned but so i you know here i am at 52 years old and really didn't even know who i was so when when i when i finally got to realize that that i could choose these things i mean i i had not ever really been in in a relationship like that i still am in that current relationship by the way which you know we, we we've talked about and we mm. You know, we both, if, if we argue, it's usually about the other person's concern. I don't want you to get up and have to worry about it. You know, I don't want, and, and, and we argue for the other person's comfort and right. we, we've constantly, you know what, this is going to be the way we, we are the rest of our, the, as the rest of our lives because we're that much concerned about, about one another. So the, the the relationship it's it's really hard to imagine because putting myself where i am now back into my into my marriage it's like there's so many things different it's like a different guy you know so it's it's kind of hard to really pinpoint what you're what what you're asking cuz the 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 whole idea of of shame and i'm not worthy when you when you think wow you are now now it's it's how how do you how do you almost see yourself? I mean, I, I mean, I I was sitting with my with my therapist one day and he says, you know, what do you what do you enjoy? And I'm like, I can't even tell you. If you had to hold a gun to my head, I would say I want to go parachuting. That's what I said, right? And then I also said, but I'm too old for that. And then he and and I said that because my ex told me that I was too old for that, right? <laughs> right. So one of my assignments that he said, okay, John, your assignment is to go parachuting. And I went and it was one of the best experiences I've, uh, that I ever had. And, you know, it's, so to it, you know, it's it's really difficult to kind of put my wor- myself where I am now back 10, 12 years ago in my mind. I mean, I can see my mindset, understand why I would do things, but now it's, it's completely you know, I would never fall, I would never fall back into that situation again. I just couldn't.
0: I think about an experience early on with my husband. We've been together 26, 27 years, something like that. And he's a dozen years older than I am. And I was 25 when we met. I remember I was probably 26 when we were on um we we're on the highway going up from Washington DC up toward Wilmington, Delaware to go see my aunt. And it was after work we were going to have dinner with her but we had waited until i think 7 to leave because we knew if we left at 5 it would take us 2 hours to get there in traffic if we left at 7 it would take us 1 so oh we'll just leave at 1 and or at 7 and not get stuck in traffic and actually you know get there faster earlier than we would have otherwise in some cases, but anyway, we're, we're driving on the highway and I'm really hungry and I can feel myself getting hangry. Right. My, my attitude is dropping. My energy is dropping. I'm starting to get headachy. And I said to my husband, boyfriend at the time, I said, gosh, I'm really hungry. He said, yeah, me too. And we pass the exit to one of those, um, roadside places that has all the different, um, uh, fast food restaurants, and I looked at him, and I was like, Ugh. "And in my head, why didn't he stop?" I just told him I was hungry. So then we're coming up to another exit, and I see the sign, and I say it again: "I am so hungry." And he said, "Yeah, me too." And that, and we drove right by the exit, and now I'm angry. I'm like, Ugh. why didn't he stop? I mean, goodness, why didn't he stop? I just told him I was hungry. And then as we're coming up to a third exit, and now we're still 40 minutes at least away from my aunts. And I don't know if she's going to have dinner ready. I'm frustrated. I'm shaky. And I finally, like this light bulb went on in my head again, this whole dimmer switch slowly, but surely. And I said, I, I you know, I'm really starting to get headachey. Will you pull off at the next exit where there's a McDonald's? I just need a burger. Just one of those little tiny junior hamburgers just to get the edge off. And he's like, yeah, sure. And we pull off, we grab my little burger. We're back on the road in eight minutes or however long it took. And I remember that moment. I remember it so vividly. I simply wasn't using my words. I was expecting him to deduce that I wanted him to stop instead of just saying, Hey, could you stop so I can grab a bite?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I was expecting him to read my mind And ever since then, every time I find myself getting annoyed by something, 25 years later, 27 years later, I'll say, would you, you know, um, this was one of the examples. I was shifting offices again when I was working for the state. And I said, this is the third time I'm shifting cubicles. And I hate these cubicles. It sure would be nice if some flowers were delivered after I moved into this new cube. (laughs) And I told one of my guy friends this, that I had told my husband that he goes, damn, I wish my wife would tell me when she wanted stuff like that. And two days later, flowers were delivered to my cubicle Mm -hmm. because I told him what I needed from him. And um, so that's what I'm thinking in terms of those moments where you realize that you have a role in that relationship beyond pleasing the other person, but getting your needs met. In yeah. a way that is um, fair and reasonable.
1: I I always view things through the lens of shame. That's the one thing that you know I, I talk about in my book, where um, where it's like I'm looking through sunglasses, and everything I see comes through these glasses, right? But these sunglasses sort of have a filter of this idea of shame, and so it all gets perceived through this idea. From from the unworthiness side of shame, because again, shame has ha, gives you feelings that range from total unworthiness to complete arrogance. And okay. so, you you know, mine has always tended toward the unworthiness side. So everything that comes through, it's like, okay, well, am I worthy for this? I, you, whatever whatever question to to put myself down, um, you know, kind of things. And in my current relationship, we. We both have that sort of, of, well, my needs aren't that important. And so we don't say anything. And consequently, we're in that car passing the exit, you know, and and we both tend to be that way when if I would have just said, you know what I'd like to do? Or if she said, you know what I'd like? Perfect. and And now it's like I'll tell, look, I'm going to the store. Tell me what you want me to get. You know. And that's, and that's fine. I don't have any problem. Okay. Get what you want, but okay. just tell me, please. <laughs> exactly.
0: Use your words. Please use your words. I think that's really interesting when you talk about that from that point of shame, because I, the you caught my attention when you said it's, it usually goes either one direction or the other toward the unworthiness or to the arrogance, which is that false sense of confidence. Correct. And, and I see that a lot in um, particularly in men, but I see it in women as well. So I'm curious um, when you've seen that show up, what does that look like? When I see it show up in me? Uh, in the arrogance side. I don't know if that oh, shows the, up in oh, you, oh, but in maybe yeah. one of your clients or another story that you've experienced with somebody else who who struggles with shame and doesn't know it yet.
1: The, the arrogance, see, that's that's the, the issue with the arrogant side is because you have this feeling that you're right. So when you're always right, how do you know when you're wrong? I... There was there was one thing in my life where I was truly arrogant, and and and, um, and I'll, I'll share that to give an understanding. And that was with with the religion that was involved in this organization. I mean, it didn't matter if you were a Christian if you didn't follow it the way we established it, you were going to hell. Oh. And and it was oh yeah, it was bad. It was bad. I remember okay, even even being a coach there. I remember when there was, there was a gentleman there who had a stepson who was a really good athlete. And I knew he was a stepfather and he tried really hard, but this guy had long hair. looked like he played in a, you know, in a rock band was smoking. And he came up to me one time and he wanted to talk about his son. And I distinctly remember in my mind thinking, man, it's too bad. This guy's going to hell. Oh. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Hugely judgmental. and, and, that that arrogant side it get it it gets you to a point where where even though it's a false it's a false um, uh, uh, confidence you know you don't even want to accept that it's not because that's what you're covering up I'm I'm better than what people think they perceive me as or I don't want them to perceive me as this so I'm going to put this air on that makes me better, because I don't want them to know really how low, how little I think of myself. And and the, but they don't, they typically don't get to the how little I think of myself, because they just believe it's true. Because a lot of times, their the arrogance gets them to work harder. So they might succeed, they might make more money. And this, this succeeding, this other people tell them, wow, yes, doing a good job, it only adds, it only them on the back for being arrogant. It feeds it, right? Yeah. So they don't, there's no reason to look at it when when now, now, again, I'm not saying that that, you know, pushing and all these things are 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 detrimental, but it can be It's it can be a distraction. I don't even want to think about how little I think about myself. So I'm going to put all my efforts into this because if I can get this thing to grow, that'll prove that I'm that I'm that way. When you don't. The only thing you need to prove is to yourself. Right. And right. that's, uh-huh. that's the difficulty with, with the arrogant side of shame. How do you show somebody that when they're already fighting against themselves, wanting to not, not to even want to think, think about it. Right. I, I, got, yeah. I got one other example. You mind if I, if I share. Yes, please, please do. So basically in my first marriage, um, the, I, I loved my ex, but I didn't really love her enough to be in a relationship with her. That's what I deduced, right? But things happened. Things started to really hit the fan in May of 2011. But if you'd have come to me, Sarah, in April and said, you know, John, I don't really think you love your wife. I would have objected. What do you mean? There's no man who's been married to their wife for 22 years that doesn't love her as much, if not more than I do. Nobody, right? Because why? What kind of a horrible person would I be to be with somebody for 22 years and not love them as much or more than anybody that that whole idea of what a horrible person I would be. I didn't even want to contemplate the fact that I really, really didn't love her. And that's, that's, those are the kinds of things where we got to be honest with ourselves. And it's not easy. I mean, who wants to go, yeah, I'm so proud of myself for understanding that I'm an idiot and I really didn't love my, you know, we just, right. we just stop right. looking it. It hurts. Those, yeah, yeah.
0: Right. It's painful and, to self-reflect like that and to have yeah. to acknowledge that you're not great or that you are human. <laughs> <laughs> Bingo. Wow, that's an awesome example. Thank you for sharing that. That's sure. um and a painful example and absolutely accurate. I've I've seen that where there's you just have so much invested in that false person in that sense of self that by acknowledging something is off yeah. you're you're it, it feels like you've wasted all this time. Like, yeah, um, and that you're not the person you thought you were, and ouch, the, that's well, awful. That's an awful
1: feeling. the The interesting thing with 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 shame is a lot, a lot of times you say, okay, how do I know I'm overcoming it? And 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 when you can take your past faults abuses, whatever it is, instead of letting them hold you down, you use them for a springboard to to do better. So I look at myself as shame, not not worthy, all of these things, everything is wrong with me, right? I mean, there was a point where there's a verse in the Bible in James where, you know, no one is good, only God is good, where I got to a point where, well, maybe the worse I feel about myself, the more I'm going to please God, which is a perfect environment for shame to thrive, right? So yes. I look at myself as, as, you know, oh, I'm this shameful person. Well, now, when I see something that's wrong with me, it's really easy to, hey, let me take a look, because I can accept that, because I, for so many years. I, I, I thought that way. Well, let me look. Let me look and really see if it's true. Let me mm, let me take. Mm-hmm. So I it doesn't bother me to admit my mistakes or my faults. In fact, I got to be careful sometimes, because if you admit too much, people are this guy's got too much wrong with him. I don't want him to help me. I, you know. I, I mean, really, I I but it doesn't bother me I, I I'll, I'll lay it out on the table but you know again that's not a good marketing strategy but it's okay, <laughs> okay. I, I would I don't, I don't do know
0: that. I would disagree with that um okay. not that because of the way that it's approached it's not these are all the things that are wrong with me it's here's something that I noticed about myself that I have to decide if it's something I want to keep or if it's something that is damaging me internally or damaging my relationships. Sure. Um, so, for instance, I, I think about this in terms of our um, our thirties because it seems like a lot of us go through this interesting time in our thirties where we start to realize these things about ourselves to be true um, that are true. You know, the things we've been fighting in our twenties, trying to to be something different because we. Trying to be something different because we see something in ourselves, and we see other people that we admire, and we want to be more like them. So that's the twenties. The thirties is when we start to um, resign ourselves to who we are. That's my theory, and it seems that um, when we get to that point where we just decide, okay, I'm I'm talkative, I talk a lot. That's who I am. I remember doing that in my thirties and thinking, okay, I can acknowledge that now. And it wasn't until my 40s that I started to embrace it and understand that, yes, you can be a talkative person and you can learn to listen really well. You can be both. But it wasn't until my 40s until I started realizing that. So I love that you acknowledge these things that aren't perfect about you, that you don't necessarily see um, as, as perfection. And yet, it's the way that you approach these things that make you such a good coach, so good at what you do, is that you take that step back and think about it. Is this something that I like about myself? Is this something that's serving me? And anyway, that's that's but, what I'm thinking as you're speaking. Thank you very
1: much. I appreciate that.
0: But, and I think it's the only way that we can serve others is to approach those things in ourselves that way. I mean, the whole point of coaching is self-reflection, right? That's the whole point of what we do with our clients is to guide people toward healthy self-reflection. Mm. And if we can't do it ourselves.
1: <laughs> hmm. right. right,
0: So um, as we kind of come full circle back to the, the whole um, idea of music playing a role in who you are, how you think, how you listen, um, because we started there, I'd love to hear a story, a recent story, about how music, particularly because I know you still play with the symphony, how music has um, maybe influenced how you coach or how you think about self-reflection and shame. My guess is that there are times when that is very front and center in your head, that that application.
1: I have to reflect. Take some time to reflect on that question. Mm-hmm. I well, of I, course. <clears throat> you start starting off as somebody as as, as who's a, who's a composer. I and also very, very, uh, you know, uh, influenced by the classical music realm, and not really much in the popular music. I i i li- I'll listen to like, for instance, we're playing Mahler's first symphony, and Mahler was a very philosophical kind of a composer a lot of kind of stuff. So I, I, I'll listen for those kinds of things, but a lot of time it's just how it makes me feel. You know, if I'm, if I'm wor- if I'm working at my desk and, and I, I get tired, I'll put on a piece that I know is going to, is going to get my blood going <laughs> and mm-hmm. yeah, and in, in, a, in a positive way and in, right. in an inspiration. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but as far as my reflection, I don't know, I, I, for me, most of it is done when I write. Mm. And, and, and like, like you say, you like to mull it over in your head and then you put it on paper. When I put it on paper, that's when I'm mulling it over. Cause so, you know, thankfully with word processing, it's not a typewriter anymore. We can go back and change without having a lot of strikethroughs and all this kind of corrections, because, you know, I you probably know I post articles on a weekly basis and and a, sometimes I'll go back and read some of something that I've done. And I'm like, wow, I wrote that. I mean, you know, <laughs> I kind of, kind of impressed myself. But that there, the the actual writing is really where more of the reflection and the and the philosophical aspects, that's that's where it really seems to mold itself more than an influence for music, if you don't, if I don't, if it's okay to answer that way. Of course,
0: of course. The, well, the reason I ask is that, um, as a musician myself, what I find is that when I can separate myself from my thoughts by singing, by because uh, mine is all lyrics, so I can't be thinking about my work and my clients while I'm singing "Black Coffee" by Julie London. Right, all I'm thinking about is the the soulful lyrics in that song. And the reason I asked you that question is because I need that time to be soulful without my own um, crazy hamster on the wheel in my brain kind of going because that's that's my MO. Uh, Almost as soon as I'm awake, I have a hamster running in my brain and I can't shut it down. So being able to, even when I'm hiking, That's when I'm processing as opposed to writing like you do. I process when I'm hiking, it just gets, that's where all of my thoughts start to develop some clarity, but I need that break in music to be able to be fully present when I'm working with a coaching client. So that's, that's why I asked because I know that music plays a big role in my life in, in how I apply it even with the work that I do. So and your answer is just fine. It totally oh, makes sense to me.
1: <laughs> the, the interesting thing is, too, because I, you know, music and, and the funny thing about me, lyrics oftentimes get in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I prefer a lot of times words without lyrics. But when I'm working on something that takes concentration, I can't like writing. I can't have music going on because because the, you know, being a, a former composer, I'll hear something and I'll listen for the chord progression. I'll listen for the way it's arranged, and it distracts me from what I'm doing. And I'm really easily distracted, and and I not and not very good at multitasking or what uh, Melissa Hughes calls it, you know, multi-switching. which multi-switching, right? <laughs> yeah, she, she doesn't believe that that multitasking is 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 possible, and, and I agree right. with her. But that's a whole other story. But I'm really bad at it. So I, I can't, I got to close my door. I can't have, I have to have silence when I'm, when I'm doing something that really, like I say, takes a focus like writing, or if I'm working some kind of mathematical kind of a stuff with, you know, with what I'm doing, I, I can't listen to music. Cause it'll, it'll just, it'll just take me right out. Um, That's so
0: interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, we all process things differently. Yes. We all need different uh, stimulants around us to, or not having stimulants around us to be able to focus. My husband's more like you. He needs quiet and um, like all focus time to be able to do his writing, where if I am sitting in a coffee shop and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on around me, that's when I get my most (laughs) incredible work done. (laughs) So opposites. So John, just to wrap this up, let's come to um, kind of a, I don't know if you have another story you want to share about your book Or if you want to just share with our audience, with the listeners, how for how people can get a hold of you, where they can get your book, um, anything else you would want listeners to know, either about you or about the work that you do?
1: Well, uh, thank you very much. If you don't mind, my my website is shamedoctor.com. So that's kind of easy to remember. There is a button on there where it says buy the book. And there's also a you can sign up for my uh, weekly newsletter. And um, my email is johnashamedoctor.com. Those are the, three, the best ways to get a hold of me. And um, I really enjoyed writing this, re- redoing the second uh, edition. And I don't know if you know Susan Rooks from LinkedIn. Of course. Um, but she edited my book.
0: <laughs> and
1: cool. another nice connection from LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And she's actually one of my biggest promoters. Uh, mm-hmm. for the book. But I, I, again, it was, it, it was, um, I've really enjoyed rewriting it, and I'm gonna, i i have plans for the future, which I won't—I won't divulge now. For—for for, for a lot more writing, because I just feel that writing just seems to be the—the the gift. Even more, it's—it's it's really actually overcoming my music mm. um, to the point where I think I'm gonna have to stop playing pretty soon because <laughs> I'm gonna be spending so much time working on this, on on the writing aspect, and you know, developing little workbook it's for people who are in particular situations like in toxic relationships that they can help get out of those things um mm-hmm, that's yeah. that's where my focus is is going to be not just on the shame aspect but the healing that's another huge part which really we really didn't get into but you know we talk so much about healing but what does it mean how does it happen and people yeah. people rarely delve into those kinds of into those answers
0: well, and they have to start by acknowledging the shame in the first place, which I think that's kind of what your first book is, is um, allowing people that space to acknowledge that, to yes. to know that what they are experiencing is shame, as opposed to guilt or imposter syndrome or other things that it could be. Um, just being able to put a word to it. I think a lot about uh, grief in that way that, if you can put the word grief to something you're experiencing, then you can start to heal, but you can't do it until you name it. And and so I think that's what, that was my experience with working with you hearing about what you are working with um, reading some of your articles. So I'm, I, I haven't read the book yet, but I will be reading it. And um, so thank you for writing it. I know that it will serve a, a great purpose and already has. Thank you. Well, this has been lovely. John, thank you so much for joining me. Thank and you for, for
1: inviting me. It really has been great. I've really enjoyed it, Sarah.
0: Absolutely. And just so our listeners know, I will have all those links that John mentioned, the um, and the click here for his book to buy his book. I will have all those links in the show notes on my website, elkinsconsulting.com. Are you ready to start your story portfolio so you have the right story ready to share when the opportunity presents itself? When you're ready to get started, my book, Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Will, is available in all the regular places, and the audiobook version is available on Google Play and on my website, ElkinsConsulting.com. As a special bonus for listeners, the audiobook includes two songs recorded by my band, Spare Change in my living room in montana also on my website is a free podcast interview checklist it's available to download to make sure you make the most out of your next podcast interview if you enjoyed this podcast please feel free to rate the podcast and leave a review and let me know that you've done it so i can thank you properly thank you